You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Free City Church, my name's Casey Maddox. I'm one of your pastors. And I think we're all asking, in light of what we've been seeing, is how as Christians should we respond to everything that's going on in our world? And I've been thinking about this a lot and how it fits into the passage that we're dealing with. But before we get into the passage, I just want to offer four ideas, four ideas uh, of what it means to be a Christian and see all that we've seen. And so the first thing, first, we must believe and preach the whole gospel, including what the gospel says about racial reconciliation, that the gospel instructs us to fight racism. Jesus was a heavenly body who entered into humanity to bridge to our earthly sinful bodies, to make a bridge between us. Jesus came close. The the Bible instructs us to fight racism. When, when, When Paul confronts Peter in Galatians 2, he confronts him about racism. Well, what had been happening was Peter was with the mostly Gentile church and he was eating with them. But all of a sudden, some of his uh, Jewish buddies show up and then he refused to eat with the Gentile brothers. And so in Galatians chapter 2, Paul comes to him and says he confronts him to his face and he says this. He says, why are your actions not in line with the gospel? He could have easily said you broke the racism rule, but he compared it and says what you're believing about the gospel is not transferring to what you believe about race and community. You see, the gospel speaks to racial issues. But but it goes on, like right here in Ephesians, we're instructed to fight racism. In Ephesians 2, Paul says that the gospel makes it possible for us to break down the dividing wall of hostility. And then he uses a case study where he talks about the Jews and the Gentiles who were separated. And he talks about this division in pretty profound ways, but he says the key to it is the gospel of peace. And so the first thing is we must preach and believe the whole gospel of Jesus Christ. The second is we must be honest about our racial past. We will not be able to answer the complicated questions of our present if we deny or belittle our racist past. This means for our nation, our national history. This means for our church history. This means for our individual history. When we see brutality, when we see police brutality on black men and simply point out that they resisted, which I didn't see any of that with George Floyd, we ignore a long history that has conditioned the present. I mean, if you consider this, like legal slavery in America lasted for like 250 years. And and then we step into segregation and Jim Crow laws, which lasted around 90 years. And then it's been like maybe 60 years since, since the civil rights movement. And much of that is not worth bragging about. That is a long time. The things of the past affect the the present. And so let me give you an imperfect example. And this is an imperfect example. But what if you took a marriage of 40 years? And for 36 of the years, it was legal for the husband to brutally abuse his wife. Perfectly legal. 
But for the last four years, there are now laws in place to keep that from happening. And, and now there's accountability to help enforce those laws that were on the books. But every time the husband gets irritated, she flinches. Or every time he gets angry, she wants to run. Like, would you say to her, why would you do that? Or would you consider a long past and say it's reasonable for her to still be scared? We have to consider our history. The history gives lens to the presence, and our history is very racial. You know, I think all of us would look at that wife and we would say, What's it going to take for her to trust her husband? And we would all say, it's going to take more time. And so first, we have to preach the whole gospel. Second, we have to be honest about our racist past. And third, Christians, we need to work to listen to Christian minority voices, especially Christian voices in the church. They have thought long and hard about race issues and how it intersects with the gospel and how this should inform how we should live. We should listen. It's easy not to think about any type of oppression when you're on the top of it. It's hard to see anything else but oppression when you're beneath it. We need to listen. You know, that, that could look like just asking a black friend how they've experienced racism and just listen. It could be reading Christian books about injustice. You know, this last week I bought four more books on the subject and I'm reading and I'm listening and I had to buy them on Kindle because they're all out of stock. That's good. The fourth and final thing I just want to say is as fellow citizens of the United States, we must hold leaders accountable. We must take the necessary steps to ensure that justice under the law will be upheld for all people. And when we think about this, I've heard a lot of sneering remarks about protests. A lot of sneering remarks and criticism about protests. And, and listen, wrong is wrong. But have you just thought, have you considered this? How small of a group and how fast can that go bad if a small part of a group to chooses to make it disruptive. Like there's a lot of trust that's put out in a protest. Or, or have you considered, have you thought about a protest that's gone bad? It doesn't cancel out what started the protest. Or have you considered that tens of thousands of people have protested peacefully, but it only takes a small number of people to turn that peaceful protest just wrong? And also, I think it's important at this that we consider our law enforcement too. You know, I've reached out to several black friends, but I've also reached out to several law enforcement officers who are just as horrified by what they saw, who, who want accountability for injustice and wrong, who also hate police brutality when they see it, and they're also scared because they're afraid that they'll be lumped into a group that doesn't define them at all. Like just as we get started, like Christians, we have a lot of work to do and we mustn't paint with a big paintbrush. And Ephesians 5, right where we are, Ephesians 5, it says a lot about what we should do as Christians. It tells us that we should expose darkness and walk in the light. The, the, the book of Ephesians is really ordered into two big parts. Chapters 1 through 3 describe what we are because of the gospel. 
Because of the gospel, what it is, how does it change us? And then chapters 4 through 6 describe, because of the gospel, how now should we live? And what we're doing is we spent three weeks on how does the truth of the gospel change us as people? This is the third week of that. And then we're going to spend time on how does the gospel change the way we do marriage? How does it change the way that we're parents or children? How does it change the way that we're workers or bosses? It changes everything about how we live. It should change the way that we see humanity also. This is telling us how we should live because we are Christians. Not how do we live to become Christians, but because Jesus has intercepted our lives and is resonating inside of our soul. It changes who we are. It should change how we see everything. And how should I as a Christian live in the face of brokenness all around me? The gospel instructs me on how I should see this world. Now, now this, this is a long passage, and we're going to have to work through it pretty broad stroke and pretty quickly. But I think there's some things that are really help us organize this text. And so three ways, three points that we want to organize this text. First, we're going to focus in verses 5 through 8, the darkness of sin, verses 5 through 8. Then second, in verses 8 through 15, we're going to look at the light of Jesus. So the darkness of sin, then the light of Jesus, and then finally, in the final verses, 17 through 21, we are going to look at a heart that sings. And so let's get started. Verses 5 through 8, it says this, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not partner with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Now, we ended with a theme of walking as children of light. But the first thing it talks about is the darkness of sin. And this tells us that we must see and grow in our understanding of sin. We have to have a biblical view of sin. And it says so much about what sin is. Like, like the first thing I want you to see is this sin is blinding. Like it's blinding. Like I don't think anyone wakes up in the morning and says, man, I want to do something really evil today. But I think a lot of people wake up and they start to justify their beliefs and they start to look for evidence to support where they stand or what they want to do. And what happens is there's a blinding nature of sin and then I just don't see it as wrong. Or I might see it in a vagueness like, well, of course, everyone does wrong. I don't see it as specific rebellion against God and specific hurt against his creation. Sin is blinding. Look at verse 5. In verse 5 it says, you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. It says, let no one deceive you. And I think that includes you and I deceiving ourselves. 
Sin is shifty. It hides. It crouches down to look smaller than it is. It has lots of evidence to justify why it's necessary or why it's okay or why it doesn't deserve our attention. And it it makes us want to say it's no big deal. Or it makes us want to really focus on one set of sin while ignoring another. Like let's, let's talk about that idea. Like focusing on one set of sins and ignoring another. Like basically we have two categories. Like you have sexual immorality. It also talks about in verses 3 and 4 of this chapter. And then you have covetousness, which being like coveting is greed. And so two categories, sexual immorality and, and greed. And then in between them, it just says impure, which like everything in between. And so this is just Two things. It's a case study that we can apply to our lives that we see that sin is blinding. And it's blinding to individuals. It can be blinding to churches. And it can be blinding to nations. And, and so first, like individuals can be blind to sin. Like, like think about greed. Like few people actually think they're greedy because there's always someone who is more greedy. It seems like a sliding scale. We can always find someone who is worse. Or, or you could think like this. Like, few people, like when they think about sexual immorality, like few people think that actually includes them because they say, well, I mean, we may not be married, but I mean, who, who's keeping track? I mean, there's always a sliding scale and a blinding nature to greed. And so I just want to ask this. If that can be true, if I can be blind to greed... And I can be blind to sexual immorality because we may not be married, but we're really committed and we really love one another. If I can be blind to those things, can I be blind to prejudice or racism? I mean, is that reasonable? Is it reasonable to say that my past experiences and my past pains have put deep-seated racist beliefs or prejudiced beliefs in my heart that maybe I haven't even fully uncovered yet? I think the danger is we could always ignore that in our heart because Hitler existed. There's a blinding nature to sin. It happens to individuals. It also happens to churches. Churches can be blind to sin. See, it's actually really common for churches to be blind to one set of sin, but to really capitalize on the other. Like if we took a, a continuum of churches, we could put kind of maybe on the, on the far right churches that when they think about sexual sin, they think, man, we got to get those sexual deviants. We got to stop all that sexing around. But then if you ask them about greed, they're like, well, I mean, who's greedy? Or, or we can put churches kind of on the far left of that. And what they'll do is they'll say, man, greed is the main problem in this world. Like we've got to think about the least of all. That's what Jesus said. And we can really capitalize on that. But when it comes to like a sexual ethic in the scriptures, they'll say, man, one man, one woman in the confounds of marriage. I mean, there's got to be something hidden in the Greek or the Hebrew on that. That just seems too restrictive. We can major on a category of sin and be blind to the other individuals, churches, and even nations. Like Ethan last week, he he talked about how anger can cause a foothold for Satan to hang on to in your life. But, But it's not just anger. 
Like all sin builds a foothold in your life. And I actually don't think Satan really cares about what he conquers you with. I think he will gladly let the foothold of sexual immorality slip if he can build a ledge of greed in your life. So there's a danger in just ignoring a category of sin or being blind to it. Like we have to wake up and nations can be blind to sin. That is why it is so important. That's why it's so important for us to know our history and for us to listen to our our black and brown brothers and sisters. For us just to ask questions. I mean, Paul's Two case studies of blinding sin is sexual immorality and greed, but there's so much more. He could have listed the lust of power, position, or racism, but like, I want to ask you this. What caused African slavery in the America colonies? It didn't start with hate or racism. It started with greed and power. It would be incredibly foolish for us to think that greed and power also wouldn't be in the breaking down of that. Sin can be blinding. Are we courageous enough? Are we faithful enough to ask, how am I blind to sin? How am I blind to sin as a a person, as a father, as a husband, as a pastor? How are we blind to sin as a church? How are we blind to sin as a nation? And we have a choice. In verse 11, it says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. He gives us a choice. He says we can partner with sin in the darkness or we can expose it to the light. It doesn't mean we have to understand all of it. It means that when we see it, we just have to say it's darkness, it's wrong. Sin is blinding. The the second thing this says about sin is sin is deeper than doing. Look look at verse 5. In the end of verse 5, it says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that means greed, is an idolater. Like It's kind of hard to tell if this is talking about sin is doing or sin is being. Like, I mean, you can do those things. You can do sexual immorality. You can do greedy things. But I think the way it reads is actually talking more about being. Like something in me that is lustful, that is hungry, that is never satisfied in sexual immorality or never satisfied in greed. It always wants more. It's encompassing. It's like a dark pit that keeps pulling everything in and around it. And that's, I think it's talking about being. But if there was any doubt, like we could look at verse 8, and I think it kind of clears it up. Because in verse 8 it says this, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. It says you were darkness. It, it doesn't say you were just in darkness. It doesn't say you used to just do dark things. It says that the encompassing power of sin is so deep in my soul. It's so deep in my heart that it makes me before God, I am darkness. And the only way to reverse that is not to just add some light to me. It's that my nature has to change. So Jesus, the light of the world, entered in and his light is infectious. And now I in light. And so if we look at this more in the, the wholeness of Scripture, like 
Who am I before God? Before Jesus, I am darkness, but I'm still loved. But what am I after Jesus? This says light. But, but 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, it says something else. He talks to a people who have now experienced the light of Jesus, and he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We see those words again. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This says the merciful light of Jesus changes our identity. This says, like, but now, because of Jesus, because of the merciful light of Jesus, because that entered in, because I brought that truth inside of me, because of that, this says that I am now chosen, royal, holy, His own, a marvelous light. I am God's people turned from darkness and placed to be like stars that shine in the dark of night, if we look at Philippians 2, or like a city on a hill. Or like a light on a lampstand, if we look at Matthew 5. This says that sin is deeper than our doing. It describes it in our being. But that's also how the gospel works. It changes our being before God. So the first thing that we see is sin is blinding. We see that sin is deeper than we want to believe. This also says, and I actually had four other points, but I reduced it. This also says... Sin deserves the wrath from a holy God. Now, wrath has, has fallen on hard times in our culture. Like the idea of, of God having any wrath, like we just kind of, we see it as some sort of explosive attitude that he can't control himself. But, but that's not wrath at all. Wrath is the just outcome of wickedness. And look at verse 6. It says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. Our culture is full of empty words about the gravity of sin, that it's no big deal, that we're only human, that God is just like a loving Easter bunny up in the sky, and he doesn't have any outcome for sinfulness. But this says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, a consuming darkness that we play in, that we push, that we're a part of, that is us, a consuming darkness. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The just outcome of wrongness, of wickedness. See, usually I would have to do a lot of work here to show that we actually do believe and want the judgment and wrath of God. But I don't have to do much work here. If we, if we didn't believe in like a fair judgment, or if we didn't believe that wrath was necessary, then why would we protest anything? Like the very fact that we see something wrong and it leads us to actions that that needs to be accountable for, there needs to be something that happens, it proves that we actually agree with God that sin deserves wrath. Sin is blinding. It likes to hide. Sin, it's, it's closer to our being than we want to say. It's more all-encompassing. It's more like being than it is like doing. And sin deserves wrath. There's a darkness in sin that blinds. It's deeper than we want to believe. And it demands justice. 
But praise God, this passage doesn't just talk about the darkness of sin. This passage also talks about the light of Jesus. Look at verse 8. In the middle of verse 8, it says, Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Meaning expose them to the light. Verse 12, For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, O sleeper, arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. We first looked at the darkness of sin and now we look at the light of Jesus. And the good news here is there is no sin too dark that the light of Jesus can't defeat. Like when it comes to fighting the darkness, when it comes to fighting the darkness of sin with the light of Jesus, we're told to do some things. And it's really the, these four words. We're told, we're told to expose, we're told to discern and walk, and we're told to expect. So first, expose. You fight sin by exposing it. Verse 11, it says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. That means the fruitful work of darkness. Expose sin. <clears throat> bring it into the light. Bring it before God and bring it before God's people. Exposing sin is confessing it and just calling it wrong. You don't have to fully understand it. You don't even have to fully understand how to walk through it. You just have to agree with God. This is wrong. But I mean, there's a warning. Like even here, even here, the darkness that is in our hearts can deceive us. It can deceive us in the way that we expose sin. You know, the, the two main ways that I see it where it gives us an appearance of confessing and exposing sin, the two ways that I experience in my life or the two ways that I see it most is really like this, in vague confessions and in past confessions. And, and so the first, like we can think we're walking in confession and repentance. We can think we're exposing it. But when we talk about it, it's a very vague confession of sin. And it only gives us the appearance of exposing sin. We hide it in the open. You know, we say things like, like I'm struggling with lust. Like that, I, I meet with a lot of men. That's pretty vague. I'm struggling with lust. I mean, that could mean something like this. I'm struggling with fleeting thoughts. All men do. Or it can mean something like this. I'm struggling with concentrated, lustful, role-playing scenarios in my mind. That's different. Or it can mean I'm struggling with pornography and it's getting darker and darker and it's getting out of control. And so in wide open spaces, in plain sight, I have a category that I can say, I'm struggling with lust and I don't actually expose anything. It's not brought to any more light. And so there is a way that vague confessions can leave sin in the dark to grow monstrous. There's also a way that confessing past sins already defeated, it only gives the appearance of fighting sin and exposing it. 
You see, it just says this, I used to struggle with whatever, blank. I used to struggle with this, but then I said I was sorry and I worked really, really hard and now I'm okay. I haven't actually repented of anything. See, there's a danger. See, confession exposing sin is done in the present tense. I currently hold these kind of beliefs. I currently act like this because of fear and uncertainty. I currently mistrust. I currently struggle. I need your prayers. I need you to take God's side against me so that I might also take God's side, that I might expose it to the light. The first thing that we do with sin in the Christian world is we expose it. Like, that's what we should be doing right now. Where we see injustice or when we see darkness, the Christian church, we should just expose it. It's not right. That, that, doesn't know, that doesn't mean we know how to fix it. That doesn't mean we know exactly what we should do next. That doesn't mean we even know how deep it goes. We just say, it doesn't look right. It looks dark to me. The first thing we have to do is expose. The second thing, and I add these together, discern and walk. We fight sin by discerning what is right and practicing what is right in our daily life. And so we see this in verse 8. In verse 8, it says, walk as children of light. When it says walk it actually means live. It means let your life be characterized, something that looks like we are children of light. Like there should be daily practices in our life that we are expressing sin, we're exposing sin, we're being like, when people confront us with something, we're agreeing with them, we're repenting. So there needs to be a daily life that we practice, a walking. But then look at verse 10. It says, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Try to discern. I love the humility of that. I, I love that it, it shows that there are going to be times where there, the Bible is so abundantly clear in how I should speak or how I should think or what I should do. And there are going to be times where I hold the, the biblical principles and I have to lean into the Spirit of God and I have to pray and I have to get before God's people and ask them what they think about how God might be leading or what I should do. You see, God's Word will instruct us, but He also gave us the Holy Spirit of God and the Church of God that we might come together and there is a trying to discern. Trying takes effort. You should be leery when Christian people have quick answers for every, for every problem. Like it says, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And so we see that we have to be careful. It tells us to expose sin. It tells us that we have to discern and walk out of sin. It also tells us something to expect. We have so many promises in fighting sin. Like I, I want to show three. Three promises that we get in verses 13 through 14. So verse 13, look at it. It says, But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. There's a promise there. The light of Jesus can bring sin to light in every action, thought, or motive. When we lay it before Jesus, He can actually give us insight into what is not just going on in the action, but also what's going on in the belief level in my thinking, also what's in my motive. Like the light of Jesus can bring light to it all. In, in verse 14, it goes on, it says, For anything that becomes visible is light. 
There's another promise. The light of Jesus can heal any sin in any action, thought, or motive. It says, it says that it is light. For anything that becomes visible, anything that is put in front of Jesus, that His glorious light shines upon, it can turn it to light. And like, how does that happen? I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, sometimes it's easy to see how that happens. Sometimes it's really mysterious. Sometimes when really dark things come out, there's still ramifications from them. But this says that it can actually turn it to light. Like it can actually one day. And we should never like hypothesize in a way that is cheap or shallow of how pain and suffering can be made visible light. But where we can't see it and where it's hard to dream about, we can look at the gospel and we can trust. You see, when Jesus was arrested and when he was tried and when he was beaten and then when he was crucified and died, do you know what happened? All the disciples ran. They all left because they didn't see any hope. All they saw was darkness, pain, and fear. And yet if they knew the whole plan of God, if they knew the resurrection, if they knew that he was going to turn the darkness of the cross to the light of the gospel, they might have stayed. And so when there's darkness in your life or darkness around us, and we expose it to light, and we don't know how God could ever turn that darkness into light, we look at the beauty of the gospel that He turned the horrifying darkness of the cross. And not just what was seen, but also what was unseen. The loss of Jesus' relationship with God, that God placed all the wrath upon Jesus because all the sin was imputed to Him, that He might be a substitute for us, that all of that fell and crushed Jesus, that He took that darkness to make the light of the gospel. It affords us trust. And so we should expect, but there's one more thing. See, the light of Jesus can bring visible any sin to light. The, the, the light of Jesus can heal any sin done on man. I mean, but also, there is no darkness that Jesus won't enter to make light. The end of verse 14, it says, Therefore it says, Arise, O sleeper, and rise from the dead. And then look, Christ will shine on you. It, it doesn't give a list of brokenness that Jesus will shine on, but then there's a list that He won't. It doesn't give us any type of gradation of list or progressions of sin. And we know that some sin is darker and some sin is more destructive. It doesn't give any of that. It says Christ will shine. See, sin can and is being exposed. The light of Jesus can lead us to discern what, what is right. And there is no darkness that Jesus won't enter into heal. This says we need a person in our lives to identify and defeat sin, not a rule of life in our lives. This says that we need the presence of Jesus. This says that we need the truth of the gospel in our hearts to lead us. This says what we expose and identify as sin in our life. What does that? The presence of Jesus. 
What, what, what heals the damage that sin left behind? The presence of Jesus. And, like, what enables me to change beyond the power of sin in my life? The presence of Jesus. What do we need and have to defeat racism that we see or brokenness and darkness? The presence of Jesus. The gospel of hope and reconciliation. The light of Jesus exposes sin in action, thought, and motive. Discern what is good and pleasing. The light of Jesus can heal. We have that light. Matthew 5, 14-16 says, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What do we do now? We let the light of Jesus shine. We expose darkness. We... We acknowledge that sin is blinding. We, we acknowledge that sin is deeper than what we know. And then we hold up the light of Jesus like a city on a hill that all might see it, all in the house might see when the lampshade is off. We hold up the gospel of Jesus. See, we looked at the darkness of sin. We looked at the light of Jesus. And now, let's look at a heart that sings. Look at this. It says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God in the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Like, look back at verse 19. Like it says, addressing one another. And look at all these, look at all the singing language here. Address one another in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with your hearts, always thankful for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like this talks about a heart that sings. The light of Jesus can give a song to any grumbling heart. Addressing one another with psalms, hymns, singing, making melody of the Lord. A singing heart. A singing heart can give strength in any conflict. It can give an inner strength that can't be overcome. Like the question is, is that your heart? That's going to wax and wane in your life, but is that, is that described like the inner life of you? That when you see darkness or disappointment or things that you can't explain, is there still something inside of your soul that can still sing? See, and when that wax and wanes, when that is small in the life of another believer, what is the church to do? We're to sing louder to that believer because when we sing louder, it enables their heart to sing louder. Like, do you know what I'm missing the most in missing corporate worship and preaching to cameras and being in small groups in my living room? I miss singing. 
I miss being near the front because I sing loud and I'm off pitch, but I miss singing. There is something incredibly powerful when God's people come and they sing truths about God because one, we're praising to God up. We're saying this is true about you, but we're telling one another in the same voice at the same time, this is true about God. This is true for you. A singing heart. But not just any singing, like a thankful singing that builds a song in the heart of the redeemed. Do you know a really consistent message that I've heard from black Christians, brothers and sisters? I've just heard I'm tired. I'm weary. We need to sing. We need to sing for them. You know, in rereading, or actually a couple weeks ago in our Bible reading plan, we read Acts 16. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas have been arrested. They're on trump-up charges, and they're in prison. Their feet are bound in stocks. And come midnight, I mean, they've been beaten, and everything's bad. And come midnight, what are they doing? They're singing. They have a heart that sings And that heart that sings thankfulness to God moved the heart of God. And he sent an earthquake that unleashed the doors and unleashed their feet. And yet the presence of the Spirit was with them and they didn't run. And it resulted in the salvation of the jailer and his whole family. A heart that sings moves mountains. Does that describe your heart? And the question would be, how did they get that? And the answer is that they saw the redeemed life, death, and resurrection of God that reconciled God to man in the person of Jesus. They saw a life that sang. In Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s famous and prophetic speech, he mixes the truth of the gospel in the face of prejudice with a singing heart. He says this, This is our hope. And this is the faith that I go back to the South with. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of this mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we'll be able to transform the jangled discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we'll be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. And when this happens, and when we are all, when all we, when we allow freedom ring, when we let the ring from every village, from every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all God's children, black men and white men, Jew and Gentile, Protestant and Catholic, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, We're free at last. Is the gospel, the light of Jesus, doing that in your life, in your heart? Does your heart sing? Do you need others to sing for you now? Let me pray for us. Father, Lord, you tell us that a darkness is real, that we can be blind to it. You tell us that it is deeper than we want. It's deeper than doing. It's closer to being. 
but you tell us that light of Jesus can enter and expose and can change. Lord, help us confess. Help us just bring to light. Like, it's a laying down of control. I mean, there's a reason why every 12-step program starts off with confession. Just admit, like, help us just to say, there's a darkness here, and I don't fully understand it, but I know it's wrong. And Lord, just like children who don't know what to do with what's in their hand, they just hold it up to their Father. Let us just hold it out. And Jesus, let us be the church that is like a city on a hill that can't be hidden. Like a light on a stand that fills a whole room. Lord, give us hearts that sing. Free City Church, I'll see you soon.